Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 46, The Republic Strikes Back. The Battle of Hatteras Inlet, August 28th and 29th, 1861. In 1861, the Union Army made some progress, yet ultimately did not cover itself with exemplary glory. The complete victory in West Virginia, and the initial success in Missouri, soon gave way to the lethargic inactivity in the Shenandoah, the humiliating rout at Bull Run, and finally the bold but ultimately failed offensive at Wilson's Creek. The victories, and even the defeat at Wilson's Creek, did turn out surprisingly advantageous for the North in the long run. Still, as late summer dawned, it seemed that the war might just kind of peter out. At that time, President Lincoln had a great deal of trouble managing the country's finances. This task was made no easier by the fact that his Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, was no less a neophyte student of finance as Lincoln was a newborn student of war. The two men, utterly unlike in temperament and destined never to become friends, had entirely too much on their respective plates to digest in one sitting anyway. Chase, for his part, found he had a great deal of trouble getting the bond sales moving, partly on account of the extremely large sums required on short notice, and partly because the country's business leaders still looked nervously towards an unknown, murky future. The United States had no sooner recovered from the Panic of 1857 then the succession crisis blew a massive hole in the national budget and cut off the lucrative cotton trade from New York. Fear outran reality, yet the reality looked pretty grim anyway. Leading merchants and financiers naturally tightened their belt and exchanged nervous glances before wondering what tomorrow would bring. President Lincoln did not let this deter him, nor Salmon Chase, nor the House of Representatives Chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Congressman Thaddeus Stevens. That last body is particularly important in this case, because it meant that Congressman Stevens would determine the content of most of the tax and bond bills. Of course, all three would need to work in concert, at least partially, for the war to get going. And what they needed, more than anything, was action. Action to show everyone that the Union meant business. There was reason to hope. President Lincoln aimed to demonstrate, too, that Bull Run would not be repeated. We know today, of course, that he was absolutely right. The Confederacy won victories, yes. But for four more years, the Union slowly crushed the life out of it, tearing out critical territory and vital strategic advantages each year. But in the summer of 1861, this future was absolutely not clear to anyone, not even Lincoln. The problem, as he saw it, lay in the fact that neither of his top commanders, at that moment including the shoulders of George McClellan and John C. Fremont, had any power to deliver or sustain a victory. They were still desperately building up and training soldiers, putting them into something like a fighting shape. Many of the original 90-day men had signed on for three years of service, in addition to the more than 500,000 volunteers entering the ranks. Yet many of them, perhaps even most, of those returned home at least briefly to get organized into new regiments. Besides, while a few had received their baptism by fire, they had hardly any more knowledge of drill or military skills than the completely green regiments. Lincoln had tried his best with the material available in midsummer, and it had not been nearly good enough. So he would necessarily grit his teeth 
and await the coming of a better opportunity. And yet, surprisingly, he did not have to wait long. In August of 1861, the Union Navy delivered a sudden and shocking blow that made it very clear that the Army was going to face competition in this race for glory. Better yet, the Navy delivered that blow with steel-eyed precision, took no casualties, and at the same time calmed the fears of the nation's shippers and merchants. Oh, and they showed off what modern steam engines were capable of in the process. How did all this happen? Winding the clock back a bit, almost immediately after North Carolina seceded, they began building up fortifications guarding Albemarle Sound and Pamlico Sound. Now, we alluded to these way back when describing the geography of the conflict. These are extremely large bays, small inland seas even. They are formed off the mainland of the northern coastline of North Carolina, and then bounded and protected by a long string of barrier islands. This gave these seas good cover from the worst Atlantic storms. However, it also allowed ships to sail along a thousand miles of coastline without actually going out to sea, forming a vital artery of commerce on the eastern seaboard. From a strategic point of view, the sounds and channels allowed Confederate shipping to quite happily and easily sail from port to port, unbothered by the growing naval threat of the Union. The channels also allowed privateers to dash out unnoticed, and they wasted no time striking at any ship they could catch flying the red, white, and blue flag. President Lincoln quickly learned to his chagrin that it was one thing to declare a blockade, a complex topic involving international diplomacy we shall leave for another day, and quite another to enforce it. No naval power on earth had enough ships to guard the entire Confederate coastline, Britain included. The United States Navy had to crash-build such a force, and buy up every half-sunken freighter rotting in northern ports just to get moving on the problem. And yet the miracle of it all is that they did. Having begun to build up a surprising amount of fleet strength in just a few months, for the Navy could not wait as the Army did, the question naturally came as to where that power ought to be used. And securing the two North Carolina sounds was an obvious first choice. Several reasons lay behind this. First, as mentioned, southern privateers had already begun to harass northern-based shipping, and nearly all national shipping just so happened to be northern. Second, controlling the sounds would not require the logistical organization of a longer-range objective, such as New Orleans. Third, while the Confederacy had assembled two fortifications guarding the main seaward entrance at Hatteras, these were still relatively small compared to the large, army-designed fortifications built up at the mouths of major rivers, such as Fort Sumter. Furthermore, the Union expected to derive several major advantages if the attempt went well. It would close down a major hole in the swelling blockade, of course. The ships patrolling Hatteras Inlet can then move on to other gaps. Once the Union captured the island, they might take advantage of the fact that the far northern end of the sounds stretches almost to the Navy's former base at Norfolk. That could allow an amphibious assault from the south side instead of attempting to breach the defenses head-on. Similarly, the far southern flank of Pamlico Sound ends at the broad mouth of the Noyce River, where the major port of New Bern represented a potential avenue to attack inland. A new naval base would also extend the control of the Navy down farther along the coast, creating a new coaling station, a place to rest and refuel. 
This would create the springboard for future campaigns. In addition, it might even allow coastal raiding or harassment of the Confederacy in return. The Navy was already looking towards the future, not just the immediate term. They might not have specifically adopted Scott's Anaconda plan, but they certainly had no compunction about the role assigned to them. Of note is that Gideon Wells, Secretary of the Navy, pushed forward this idea, despite the confusion and fears that Washington itself might fall following the Battle of Bull Run. This new plan, designed to strangle the life out of the Confederacy, went ahead at a moment when the temptation lay in narrowly observing the Potomac Front. Even naval vessels risked a surprise bombardment from Confederate batteries along the Potomac River, and this speaks highly of his vision in not letting himself become distracted. So it was that the Navy assembled a fleet of seven solid warships, a large portion of their available firepower at that moment, to deliver the blow at Hatteras Inlet. The Confederacy, for its part, had not neglected to strengthen this vital position. As we've mentioned, North Carolina almost immediately began digging and entrenching following the dramatic bombardment of Fort Sumter and the quick change of loyalties in Virginia and North Carolina over to the Confederate cause. The military value of Hatteras Inlet appeared obvious even to the casual observer. Although not the only entrance into Pamlico Sound, again the southern of the two major sounds the Navy wanted to take, it was the northernmost channel in it. Second, although it was much narrower than the southern inlet closer to the city of New Bern, it was also somewhat more suitable for ocean-going vessels due to the deep waters. There are small, very small, inlets to the north, but the barrier islands form a nearly continuous line. And the narrowness of the channel allowed it to be easily guarded with cannon from a land fort. In fact, while the construction did go forward in haste, the Confederate defenders felt quite confident in their work and believed it couldn't resist a flotilla with much more firepower than they had. In the end, they constructed two forts, Hatteras and Clark, mutually supporting and preventing a foe from targeting just one position. Later wartime experience indeed showed that even simple sand ramparts could often resist heavy shelling if properly manned, so the defenders had little reason to doubt their confidence. Although only possessing 22 guns combined, the two little forts could in theory absorb far more punishment than any attacking fleet. The Union force, placed under the authority of Commodore Stringham, set sail in late August accompanied by troops under our old friend General Benjamin Butler. Butler, of course, was already present with a large body of soldiers at Fort Monroe, and thus could more easily provide the necessary men than the force situated around Washington, or alternatively trying to bring in Marines. Commodore Stringham, an old veteran sailor who went to sea before most Civil War officers were even born, aimed to use his overwhelming firepower to blast the forts while the soldiers pressured them into surrender. This force would then block the channel with ships sunk down filled with rocks. That should put an end to those irritating privateer raids. The Union fleet arrived on the afternoon of August 27th. The next morning, they immediately went into action. Yes, on August 28th, 1861, the two forces would meet. Though not the first use of steamships in war, the battle would in part mark the true dawn of the Industrial Age Navy and herald the end of sail as part of modern naval doctrine. Stringham 
who had some knowledge of the very early use of steam power in the Crimean War, made use of the fact that six of his ships had steam power. He decided to adopt an age-old tactic with this much more modern technology. The Navy would, very simply, sail the ships around in a wide circle. As each ship came into range, the gunners would target Fort Clark and then continue to move on, wind or no wind. Then, the gunners would reload while the ship came around for another pass. One of the vessels, which did not have a steam plant, simply got pulled along by one of the others. Although perhaps comical, it worked and added more firepower to the assault. So it was that at dawn on the 28th, the Union sailors readied their cannon, and the Confederate defenders did the same, all eyes turning to the sandy shores of Hatteras. Who would win in this contest of technology versus improvisation? Willpower against willpower. The Union did, completely. In fact, the victory was so overwhelming it left North Carolina with a slight stain of humiliation for the rest of the war. As it happened, when the Union vessels started opening fire at 10 a.m., the Confederates found they could not adequately target the Union ships. Military designers had previously assumed that sooner or later sailing vessels would necessarily anchor to lay a strong bombardment on any target. The winds might be favorable, or not, but would rarely permit a constant movement that helped only the attacker. A wind might drive towards a land fortress, for instance, and that aids a swift attack, but could leave sailing vessels unable to withdraw. Of course, clever sailors with good seamanship might find a way, and depending on the precise winds, they might be able to tack around. Yet in the days before steam power, that would inevitably require more time and slow the process greatly, making them bigger targets. Not only did Commodore Stringham's ships use steam power to maintain constant movement, they did so in a manner that gave them their preferred range. The Confederate defenders in Fort Hatteras, with somewhat weaker guns, could barely find the distance on the Union ships at all, let alone do any damage. Shot by shot, the sailors blasted Fort Clark into pieces. In fact, as it turned out, Fort Clark had not even gotten their guns mounted in time for the battle and thus couldn't fight back anyway, making further resistance there pointless. The only reason the Confederate defenders could even escape came down to the unfortunate situation of the Union soldiers attempting to land that morning. Starting their day at 645, the Army found their time exhausting and unpleasant and fruitless. Rough seas prevented them from landing near the forts as originally intended. So instead, they put ashore several miles north, probably somewhat green at the gills for their trouble. The original plan was to assemble and then attack Fort Clark on the 29th. Unfortunately, their powder had gotten soaked in the process, so the men could probably fire a shot to assist until it dried. However, the Confederates abandoned Fort Clark anyway, so the Union soldiers essentially just walked in and claimed the facilities for themselves. While damaged, it made a better home base than a sandy beach. The Confederate retreat from Fort Clark had been intended as a mere tactical maneuver. It concentrated manpower at Fort Hatteras, ostensibly the stronger position. And, seemingly to, as the salvation of the honor of North Carolina, help soon arrived. During the night, Commodore Samuel Barron, late of the Union Navy, arrived with more than 200 additional soldiers to fight against his old service mate Stringham. Barron took command of the defenses. But he needn't have bothered. August 29th turned into a repeat of the first, only worse for the Confederates. 
Stringham adopted another tactic from the Crimean War, and elevated his guns to fire over the defenses. The shells then plunged down on top of the fort instead of glancing off the ramparts. This might have done no good, however, except the Union gunners showed coolness and precision, knocking out one emplacement after another. In three hours, the fleet fired perhaps 3,000 shots, with no effective counterfire from Fort Hatteras. Barron, with his reinforcements or no, had essentially no defense against the fleet battering his position. Severn warships was a powerful tool, but they ought not overwhelm a land fort so easily. Yet the fleet guns simply tore the defenders to pieces. Within a few hours, the fort essentially ceased to provide any defensive value. Barron saw his men crumple under the weight of Union shells. The fort was actually too small to accommodate all the soldiers, so they huddled under whatever cover they could find outside the walls. They just dug in and hung on for dear life. After enduring the withering fire for hours, Baron chose to surrender, lacking any ability to withdraw or fight on. He had only suffered a handful of casualties, varyingly described between 4 and 14, but there was no help for it. He just couldn't fight back. Baron insisted, however, on surrendering to the Navy. Perhaps having a taste of inter-service rivalry himself, Commodore Barron surrendered to Stringham and denied that Butler soldiers had any part in the defeat. He returned north as a prisoner of war alongside his men, only exchanged a year later. General Butler, though he had not achieved any glory during the battle, did play one key role after it. The state of the forts probably appeared a sorry sight, but he quickly noticed that there was little reason to give up this position or blockade the channel as originally intended. Instead, he argued, why not just take it over? All America was, after all, one country under his government's theory, and now that the Union boys were on hand, the forts could be built up once more, and armed with modern weaponry to stop privateers and blockade runners, while allowing Union ships and to pass by and eventually return the favor. He won the day on that point, and Fort Hatteras became the first step in reclaiming the Confederate coastline, though certainly not the last. The impressive victory ironically wound up costing Stringham his career, despite the fact that he lost only one casualty in this brilliant success. After several weeks, Gideon Wells became annoyed with Stringham's vacillating ineffectual enforcement of the blockade. Now, in his defense, Pamlico Sound was an annoying place to sail, the waters too shallow for many ocean-going vessels. There are areas where deep-draft ships can travel or take shelter. And many vessels with shallow drafts were perfectly seaworthy. It is true, however, that military frigates were rarely among them. One reason the Navy at this point focused on building or acquiring smaller sloop-of-war vessels that could more easily and safely enter the sounds. Deep-draft vessels ran the risk of running aground, potentially without warning, and this could be a devastating loss. The waters of the sounds might give the unwary the impression that the sea floor is smooth and even, but this is misleading. There are, in essence, hills hidden away under the waters. The mariners who knew it best naturally lived in the area, and most would not likely willingly aid the Union. Yet the Navy had a trick or two itself. The United States held one of the largest merchant marine fleets in the world, and as we've discussed, northern ports such as Boston, Providence, Wilmington, and New York teemed with experienced sailors. The coastline of America before the Civil War overflowed with ships carrying every imaginable good to and from southern ports. 
and the men who sailed those vessels signed up for the naval service by the hundreds and by the thousands, bringing with them vital knowledge of the bays and waterways. This did not completely stop Confederate shipping through Pamlico Sound, but did strike it hard at it with plans to greatly augment their control down the line. The Union Navy cut off access for would-be privateers at a stroke, and thereby cut down on the threat to Union commerce, calming fears in the business community. Additionally, the Navy soon captured six blockade runners without even making an effort, when they sailed right up to Hatteras Inlet, only to discover it in Union hands. The battle also set the stage for later assaults on the Carolina coast, which would see the Union quickly capture more islands, set up more strong points, and cut off even more Confederate shipping. Although never perfectly effective, the blockade would tighten day by day, and eventually choke off the life from the Confederacy. Moreover, the sounds would also soon serve Union interests and allow for raids all along the coastline. Indeed, the tightening grip on this region eventually affected Confederate politics and led to, among other things, Robert E. Lee's semi-futile assignment to bolster morale in the area. But most of all, the Battle of Hatteras Inlet revived Union morale. As we've mentioned, it may seem strange given the fact that the nation endured four years of back-and-forth warfare, but many at this point thought the North would simply collapse in panic and fear following Bull Run. Hatteras proved there was some fight in the old flag yet, and if the Confederacy thought they would just get to grab victory so easily, then they were sorely mistaken. The sudden and unexpected blow forced the proud South to consider defense as well as offense, and would soon shatter slavery offshore entirely. But that is a story for another day. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.